Yeah, I mean, if if somebody shows up to the Joint Chiefs of Staff meeting to talk about military strategy wearing a Call of Duty shirt, um, you know, it, I think it's <laughs> it's something that you should call into question um, because, you know, the first question you want to ask um, really when anybody's doling out advice is, is have they been there? Have they been shot at? Have they have they actually really been there and at minimum experienced the real world chaos and emotionality associated with the situations that they're talking about? Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. Uh, so, Jason, we have a returning guest with us uh, this week to continue our series around careers and career progress and whatnot. So, uh, yeah. Evan Lapointe is joining us again. So, Evan, it's great to have you back. Thank you. Great to be back. And Evan's got like uh, his own podcast studio or something. Like, you got the backdrop going on, and well, yeah. I, so, I painted my office. I, I'm in this office in a co-working space. It used to be white. And every day I was in here, I literally felt like I was in an insane asylum. So I painted it, paint, painted it dark blue. I mean, it was it was unbelievably distracting. Like for whatever reason, it was the fluorescent lights on the white walls, and just it was awful. So I painted it this color. I need to put some sort of a shelf up here, but uh, it's a nice space to do writing in, to do some thinking and work in. All right. So two questions. Uh, one: Do you have the? Or did you hear my hummus uh, alert? down my alerts my my slack says hummus when i get a new message it's, it's <laughs> uh, um so okay so two questions one you have the leeway to paint your office in a co-working location uh yeah so i'm in uh one that i guess i kind of told him i was gonna move if i couldn't um but they, I also showed them like what I was going to do and they thought it was really cool. And then now when they do tours of the space, they always bring people by my office and want to like show people how we did it. Cause I've got a record player over here and some chairs <laughs> nice. and I've got my chest set up and like a little reading chair set up. So it's like a nice little sanctuary. I just need more, more back here. So, 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 so your, your pay for allowing them to use your space as the, uh, uh sample space like the that demo you, yeah exactly you the demo right. space you get to paint the walls of. all right yeah uh, so second question uh is it a space issue is it a focus issue what what made you decide to invest in a co-working location uh well we just moved last year and the room i was in the, the house uh, it just was filled with stuff like chaos. So I, this is kind of an empty space. I kind of have gotten into a mentality that I only want the tools that I'm using out in the open anymore because it used to be just surrounded yeah. by stuff. And then well, that's it, right my brain just can't handle 
being surrounded by all that stuff. I, I think some people can, but my brain is just like, Ooh, look, I, I want to play some guitar. I want to, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. So just okay. gets too distracting. Very cool. I've, I've thought about um, doing a co-working space because I, I have that same problem as well. One, there's just so many projects around the house I can work on. So I'm distracted by that. But I think mostly my office, I just have like all my stuff everywhere and it's my brains going a million miles an hour. I just don't know yep. that I'd have the discipline to actually get in my car and drive down the road 10 minutes to a co-working space. So what worked well for this is I dropped Finley, my daughter off at school. And then this is five minutes away from her school. Okay. So I have like a nice little ritual, spend some time with the kids, drop her off at school and then boom, I'm right here. So that that's nice. why it works. And if the that's school drop off wasn't happening in the days that it doesn't happen, I skip a lot of days here. <laughs> so, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. All right. Good stuff. Well, glad to have you uh, back. I'm hoping this will be a, no, it will be, it will be an awesome conversation. Oh, it totally will. Yeah, it's a fun topic. Uh, it's one that I um, have very strong opinions about. So we'll, we'll see where, see what Jim always asks great questions. So we'll just let him kind of be our guide and then figure out how I can, um, be as nice as possible about some of those questions. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> so you know, before we get started, I just have to point out like how crazy it is in the Philadelphia area right now. Like the major sports teams are insanely doing well, like insanely meaning like in my lifetime, I've never seen potentially all four sports playing well at the same time. So you've got the Eagles who are six and out. The Phillies, which I've got my gear on, start the NLCS tonight against San Diego. Um, and we're going to come back to that because I'm just going to tell you flat out, that's my segue into our topic today. The Flyers, who I've been a Flyers fan since I was seven years old, and honestly, I thought they were going to be garbage this year and still think they are going to be. It's just one of those years. They're 2-0, and and the Sixers start tonight. And I've been joking with people, if the Sixers start out the season well, just take that as the four signs of the apocalypse, having all four of those teams playing well at the same time together. Um, and, uh, and Sunday, Sunday was a big matchup in the premier league uh, in England and uh, NBC, by the way, does a phenomenal job with their ability to uh, attach to the local market. They were in Philly for their fan fest on Saturday and Sunday and the the crew from England was just raving about the energy of the the fans in Philly. Yeah. So it, there it, must be something in the air right now. There there absolutely is. So going let, let, focusing on the Phillies. Um so our topic for today is the importance of finding a mentor for your career. Um so the Phillies like they the last couple of years they've gone out and been strong in the free agent market picking up Big name players. Now, a couple of years ago was Bryce Harper. They made a few key signings over this year. They've got a few up and coming uh, players that are kind of really hitting their prime right now. They had a high profile coach in Joe Girardi starting the season, and they were mediocre. They had a below 500 average to start the season. They fired Joe Girardi and they replaced him with the bench coach, who, like, over the course of the summer, got this team playing well. And for the most part, he's not a high-profile coach. Uh, he was actually joking about the other day, like, 
he could go wherever he was working and no one would recognize him. He is, he's gotten this team playing so well and this city is so excited about it. He goes, everywhere I go, people recognize me. I'm not used to it. So he's not a high profile coach, but he's got these players playing well. And especially when they've started showing some of the post game stuff as the playoffs were getting closer and they clinched and they've made it through two rounds so far, you see players that are, you know, going out and fighting for this coach. Like he has gotten them so motivated so charged up, you know, you could tell some of these guys would run through a wall for them. So I, that's my segue into our con- our conversation today around finding a coach, finding a mentor that is going to help propel your career. Because Jason and I have talked multiple times on, on this podcast about how it is very, very common in the sports world where your top tier athletes will seek out coaches and mentors to improve their game, improve their performance, or you see teams that just come together under under a great coach and players strive to play for that person. In the business world, it feels like it's a mixed bag. Um, in some cases, you do see a lot of talk about people going, you know, saying you should go find someone to help mentor you, help you improve your career. But then on the other side, seeking out help is oftentimes seen as a sign of weakness, or at least people perceive that if I go out and seek someone to help me improve my career, um, someone to coach me along, I'm going to be perceived as weak as compared to maybe my coworkers, my colleagues, and it's going to hurt my career. Um, so let's start at the top here. What does it mean to find a career, a mentor for your career? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a loaded intro in a good way. Um, I think what it means is you're taking it seriously, but I think there's, there are reasons, um, the weakness that you mentioned, the, um, the difficulty finding a coach, a mentor, a good one, uh, you know, there's a lot out there because, I mean, you, you brought up sports examples as we started. And there are probably more people in the field of analytics than there are professional athletes in the NHL plus the NFL plus the NBA, right, plus everything. So if you're looking to find a coach in the, you know, a, a mentor and you're an NBA player or an NHL player, um, you're going to be able to talk to some of the greatest people who have ever been in that space ever hall of famers coaches that kind of see things in a new way um they're in a very elite space if you're in corporate america and you got ted who's the senior director of marketing uh ted isn't in the top 100 athletes in the sport in the world Ted's in the top million and maybe he's in the top hundred, but you can just see the probabilities, how they've shifted because of population size and a lot of people. So if we tier businesses into, you know, we, we tend to think about businesses in five tiers of peak performance businesses, high performance businesses, functional, semi-functional and dysfunctional. So our spectrum runs all the way from the business is doing things that are almost incomprehensible um, 
you could think about SpaceX and Starlink and Tesla as in Elon's kind of kind of uh, ideas. And there's plenty of problems in those businesses for sure. Like they're they're not uh, oases by any stretch of the imagination, but their output is unbelievably brilliant. And uh, if you if you put that in contrast to a company that is barely able to change text on their homepage in three months, while another company invents satellite internet in you know roughly the same time, you can see the spectrum is massive. And I meet a lot of people uh, who seek high performers within their environments. And if you're in a functional or a low functioning or dysfunctional environment, a high performer in that environment isn't in the majors, isn't in the minors, isn't in high school. They're like the elementary flag football team. And that is not the person to be getting advice from. So what it means to get a mentor is it means that you are embarking on a potentially difficult journey um, if you're looking in the wrong places, but a really rewarding life accelerating journey if you find a great person if you're looking in the right places and the the best of those are what i call like deathbed experiences that on their deathbed people say i wish i did this better did this differently didn't do this did do this spent my time here instead of spending my time there and if you can take that epiphany from your deathbed back a decade or two decades or three decades and have that epiphany when you're 25 or 35 or 45 instead of when you're 75, you, then you have all those years the rest of your life to live out the results of that epiphany. And most people have them late. You know, they, they just learn things late. And what having a mentor does is takes the epiphany from your deathbed and move it backwards decades. Huge changes in the trajectory of your life. And you know, even of a of a sports team and, and on a micro scale, but you know, huge changes in trajectory in your life and a professional personal scale. So I'm interested in in your take because you mentioned these these tiers, and I, I I don't know if you have any research or gut on on kind of just looking at the domestic landscape of companies, what the distribution of those companies are. But it feels like a lot of the companies are in that lower tier state of being dysfunctional um, or, or maybe a level uh, above that. If you're, if you're an employee in one of those companies, how do you overcome the fear factor that it, it, to Jim's point, it may be incredibly difficult to say like, I want to mentor, I want to get better because as, as he, as he pointed out, that could come across in, in these businesses, especially in these lower functioning states as, as weakness, or you're not good enough. In fact, you know, I've had people reach out to me over the years, and I guess you could call it mentorship, asking for help, and then saying, "By the way, can we keep this between us? Because, you know, I'm supposed to be the analytics expert in my company, and I don't want someone to find out that I don't have all the answers." Yeah, I mean, I think that's private is probably the right strategy. Um, do things. You know, I think there's a simple question you can ask of your manager or of your organization, which is. If I wanted to learn, if I wanted to learn how to be even better um, at what I do here, would that be an investment that the company is willing to make in me? And you're either going to get uh, absolutely like hell yes, or you're going to get something else. And all versions of something else mean you're in an environment 
where you need to keep it to yourself until, you know, maybe later, like once you kind of exhibit the results of that success of, of the mentorship having an effect in your life, then you can say, hey, let me try to make it safer for the next generation of people by opening up about this, that I actually had a lot of help along the way, had a lot of great insight along the way. But that is, I mean, it is often and probably should be often a private investment that people make in themselves, particularly if in one of the, you're in one of those environments, because one of the natural conclusions of getting great mentorship, if you're in a mediocre environment, is for that mentor to help you understand you are in a mediocre environment and you need to get out of a mediocre environment. If you are in the Des Moines Symphony Orchestra and you are a London Symphony Orchestra level player, you should not be in the Des Moines Symphony Orchestra if it's for any reasons other than you are personally very attached, you know, if it's personal purpose at that, at that stage. So, and a great mentor will help you realize that, will help you see your self-worth because mediocre environments, you know, these functional, low-functioning and dysfunctional environments are highly engineered, not even, not maliciously, but just kind of the way that they're built they're built to convince everybody that they're not special. Yeah. And, um, and, and if you are special, then you have to have a way of getting that external validation and some of the tools to leverage the fact that you're special. Yeah. And you see that a lot with just with like people converting from employment to entrepreneurship, they're going to go reach out to some entrepreneurs. And I just spoke with one last week, a person who is considering entrepreneurship and they were bringing up a bunch of topics about entrepreneurship that were, you know, a little more tactical. And I was like, I, I have to tell you, you know, if it's welcome in this conversation, I'm guessing you called because you want this type of feedback uh, that you're thinking about all of the wrong things right now, right? You're, mm. you're worried about all the easy stuff that is, that, you know, is not going to be the real problems you're tackling. You need to be, thinking about these things instead and your mind is not right for entrepreneurship right now like it is completely misattributing what is important uh in the formula and i'm not saying you shouldn't be an entrepreneur i'm just saying don't start today because this is not this is not yeah. the, the way to go in this um and you know that i think the person you know was receptive and needed to hear that and is perfectly capable of being uh you know, entrepreneurially minded and focused on the right things, but in that moment was not giving off that vibe. So we, so we talked about it from an organizational perspective. And I, I think what I heard, heard you, heard you say is that as an individual, it needs to be an individual choice and priority to, to make that happen. Um, and, and a lot of times having that done in private may be the, the right approach, but maybe not leaning on an organization to provide the structure to provide mentorship, that it's something maybe that transcends the company that you're working for, if I heard you right. Absolutely. I mean, you're making a huge investment in yourself. Yeah. Uh, and that is, um, and you need, if you're going to make that big of an investment in yourself to say, okay, I want people to help me see what I'm supposed to be seeing and to help me think in a different way, um, then that's a pretty invasive surgery in your brain. And you better pick somebody who's going to be doing you a favor instead of a disservice. Yeah. And, you know, like even like you brought up sports, Jim, 
the PGA tour, right? Like there's a gazillion people that can teach you how to swing a golf club. And most of them can help you break a hundred. Most of them can probably help you break 90. Very few of them can help you break 80. And very few of them can help you sustain yourself and improve as a professional golfer. And in, in fact, a lot of the teachers that help you break 90 are going to put habits into your golf swing that will prevent you from being successful as a professional golfer. And same is true for your career, that there are a lot of people that will tell you, this is how to do your career, and this is how to get ahead, and this is how to so-and-so. And that's coming from their little lassoed out experience on this earth, which if that person isn't one of the greatest achievers, you know, in the world, then it's, 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 it's a scary idea uh, that doing things exactly the way they're prescribing is, uh, is a good idea. But if they're more principles driven, higher level, et cetera, you can kind of tell there's something special about this person a little bit, a little bit safer, but it's, this is a hard topic. You know, it's a hard thing. It to is. It, it is. And speaking of speaking of it being challenging, what I'm interested in what you would say to the individual that would say, eh, it's not for me. Um, and, and I've been thinking about this. I think Jim and I have talked about it. There's, there's lots of examples. But um, so, by the way, I'm a, probably the world's worst chess player, but I love what I'm addicted to watching chess. Um, and I, I consume so much chess content on YouTube and I randomly stumbled across the podcast the other day and the interviewer introduced this guy as Magnus Carlson's coach. I'm like, what? Like literally probably arguably, you know, one of, if not the greatest chess player, at least of the modern era, um, current reigning world champion through at least the end of this year. Um, and he has a coach. So if Magnus Carlsen has a coach, if Tiger Woods at his height had a swing coach, if Michael Jordan had a, you know, a mentor coach, who among us doesn't need a coach, doesn't need a mentor? So I'd be interested in what you would say to, you know, the chess player, the entrepreneur, the, the analytics practitioner that says, yeah, yeah, I don't really need a mentor. I'm, I'm good. I got this. I think there's a, yeah, I think there's a big difference between uh, doubting that you can find the person who can help you and doubting that there is a person who can help you. And I think that's the, that's the first question for a person who says, I don't need this. Um, is, is it more of a problem of access or is it more of a problem of need? Cause the need is there. That's not up for debate. Like all human beings are complete morons. We all are. Einstein was a complete moron and he knew it, which is why he went and talked to a lot of people and got a lot of help and a lot of perspectives. And what's interesting about the most intelligent people in the world today and forever, they are the most vulnerable people, statistically speaking. And with, with the personality statistics and the correlation with IQ and things like that are really fascinating stuff that we have this kind of phrase out there of the intelligent jerk or the smart asshole. Well, the statistics prove otherwise that the highest IQ people are actually nicer than people that are lower in IQ. It's, it's not a hugely positive correlation, but it is a distinctly positive correlation between a trait called agreeableness and your IQ. And uh, there is also a high correlation between IQ and openness, which is the trait that tries to capture how much you use your prefrontal cortex, how much you're a logical thinker who likes to pick things apart, 
and how much you are a creative thinker who can kind of explore new ideas. And um, as you become more intelligent, you start to rely less on your memory and your knowledge. Like, here's what I know, here's what I'm good at. And you rely more and more on other people and more and more on logic and creativity to kind of rethink what you know, as opposed to just use what you know. So while you're really, talking, uh, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, I was just saying, really, it's, you know, anybody who says, um, I don't need a mentor or a coach. Um, I hope they fall into that first category where they really kind of mean, I, I'm, I'm a good golfer and there's nobody in my city who right. can help me like, right. That's a different statement than I'm a good golfer and there's nobody in the world who can help me. Yeah. So, you know, I think uh, there's, there's a lot of books that can help and there's a lot of books that can hurt. And a lot of people who think they don't need it, <clears throat> think they don't need it because they read a lot of books without realizing that those books are often written. I'd say half of books are written by people who watched instead of did. You know, like I'm going to come, like, come back to that one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, there's, there's different forms of coaching and mentorship and what your source is. Uh, but that, that could be one. I'll, I'll wait for your, what we're coming back to question. I'm making notes because I have so many follow-ups and, 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 and Jim, if you could hear my super soft jazz music playing, then I'm sure you can hear Sadie freaking out. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to come back to that one in, in just a second. And I was going to say as a complete aside that, uh, while you were talking, I logged into the core website to check my agreeableness, uh, and I'm in the 91st percentile, <laughs> although I've never taken an IT <laughs> test. So I'm not sure if there's, if there's any correlation there to, to intelligence. So, um, so, uh, I have a couple questions and I'm trying to figure out the order of them. I'm, I'm going to ask them in reverse order. So on, on that point, there, there's a lot of people on social media, a lot of, seemingly popular people they have blue check marks and they've got a whole lot of followers um, and they give a lot of advice on on doing certain things and i'll just say kind of entrepreneurship you know they give a lot of advice on building and running a business but they've never built and run a business um how i'm, I'm guessing it's not a it's not a zero to a hundred that there's probably some variant of value that they can provide you but as someone looking for advice how do you suss out the people that have actually climbed the mountain and, and come back down safely versus the people that like me that have just watched a lot of documentaries on getting to the top of K2 and Everest. And, you know, <laughs> I have a lot of well, great yeah, advice I, from watching the documentaries. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, if, if somebody shows up to the joint chiefs of staff meeting to talk about military strategy, wearing a call of duty shirt, um, you know, it, I think it's it's something that you should call into question um, because, you know, the first question you want to ask um, really when anybody's doling out advice is, is have they been there? Have they been shot at? Have they, have they actually really been there and at minimum experienced the real world chaos and emotionality associated with the situations that they're talking about? And if not, it doesn't mean that they're wrong, but it, you know, when, when we talk about academics uh, in a condescending way, right? I, I mean, the collective we, not me or us or at core or anything like that. But when people refer to academic thinking, they're not saying that it's incorrect. 
right? I mean, academic thinking by nature has some degree of correctness and validity to it. It's been validated. Um, but it's how correct is it? Like how robustly correct is it? How dynamic and how much does this thing fit the real world um, versus the, the generalized world? Much like when you go buy a jacket in Excel, it fits a theoretical body shape, a range of bodies, but it doesn't perfectly fit maybe any of those bodies that, that wear it. And that's what academics are. You know, if you read, you know, go back to classic books like Good to Great, uh, stuff like that, like Jim Collins uh, wasn't an operator, uh, an entrepreneur or an executive ever in his life. And he wrote a book about how to make businesses great. And he picked 11 companies to illustrate his point. Uh, and three of those companies were committed to federal fraud within two years of the book being published. And Circuit City was one of them and went out of business. And, you know, he did pick some good ones like Walgreens and Gillette, et cetera. But you could argue Gillette was incapable of innovation and got annihilated by Dollar Cave Club within a decade. And that should have never happened. So it's just... Um, I think you have to be careful with the academic stuff because the way he picked those 11 companies is out of stock performance and stock performance at the time before the time. And since the time has been proven to not be correlated with company performance. So it, it it's like, usually when the academics get it wrong, there's like one or two kind of fundamentals that were just wrong. And then all the rest of the stuff unravels from there. So like with Patrick Lencioni's uh, book, The Advantage, the whole advantage structure, the process of creating company strategy and then cadences to generate productivity begins with the executives having an offsite. But in most of the businesses who go through that, the executives have no clue what's going on. They, it's not like no clue. I'm not saying that they're like, you know, like somebody off the street who has nothing to do with the business. But the CTO doesn't know the reality of the code. The CMO doesn't know the reality of the market. The COO doesn't know the reality of operations. The CFO doesn't know the reality of budgets and investments. And like the middle of the organization knows reality. The executives know kind of the amount that they're exposed to because, again, it's not even their fault. They, they have very busy schedules with other things. But the average CEO of a Fortune 500 company spends less than 3% of their year in contact with prospects or customers. So 90%, 97% of their year is spent doing other things, which just by force, they don't have the time in their schedule to spend time talking to real life customers, talking to real life employees, doing real life projects and real life prospects with real life needs. That's just not the input. So you send all those people spending 3% of their time in contact with reality into an offsite to build company strategy. No wonder so many companies, when they present that strategy to the middle of the organization, the middle is like, oh my God, how do they think that is reality? And so from there, Patrick kind of gets almost everything right for operating a company really well. But his very first assumption, which is the executives know enough to go offsite and form the strategy is wrong. And therefore everything else it's garbage in, garbage out. So I think that's just kind of the thing is, I mean, for me, my habit is I just look everybody up. If somebody's out there spewing advice, then I'll just say, okay, LinkedIn real quick before, and before I pass any judgment, because I don't know yeah. this person yeah. could be amazing 
this person could be completely full of crap. And like when product-led growth took off uh, in the last few years, PLG and all this stuff, your product should lead your growth like Slack and so and so and so and so, and everybody's saying product-led growth, product-led growth, product-led growth, everywhere you go, product-led growth. I just looked up the author and the author's never built a product in his life. <laughs> He's never run a company in his life. He was a marketer, a digital marketer. And then he came up with this uh, concept, this term of product-led growth. He made a lot of very good points, but missed a lot of the points that you wouldn't miss if you had ever built a product in your life. Missed a lot of the points you would never miss if you've ever run a business in your life. And therefore, all these companies saying, we're going to be a product-led growth company. I'm like, you're going to be a company that lets somebody in their late 20s who's never done any of your jobs before tell us all how to do our jobs. I smell danger. Yeah. <laughs> so, and again, it doesn't mean he's wrong in the like black and white sense. It means like if there's a hundred things he says, a few of those things are off because he hasn't been there. And if those few things that are off are critical, then you're going to have critical levels of error in implementing a system like that. So, so let's, let's switch the lens a little bit to the side of the mentor, because I, I have a feeling that we miss out on a lot of really great advice and experience from people that, that truly have the experience uh, to, to add value, but are too humble to, to, to admit that. And, and so I guess my question is, at, at what point is it okay to feel like you have advice to share, right? It's like, well, you know, I haven't climbed the world's tallest mountains. I've only climbed these mountains, or I've only run a company that, that generates $5 million instead of $50 million. Or yeah, I had a product, but it only had a few thousand users, not a hundred thousand users. So I'm not, you know, I, I'm not, I can't be a mentor. I can't share my advice yet. Like, how do you, how do you overcome that hurdle that there's some sort of magical, kind of summit you have to get to before you're allowed to share your advice and wisdom? Boy, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, you know, when, when we think about human performance in general, and I'll maybe be able to answer it a little bit better this way. Um, we, we not, we don't just stratify companies into this dysfunctional to peak performance, but like individual people's mentalities and, the way you know if you're in this high performance or peak performance state or a lower performance state is your behavior, uh, what, what you kind of lean toward behaviorally. So behavior, when we're making decisions and working, um, there's a popular model that kind of breaks your behavior down into steps um, called see, think, act, which is kind of the psychological community's framework for what, what you're doing when you're making a decision. You're, you're seeing something, which is why you're in, in the decision-making process to begin with. You think, and that's how you make the, form the decision, and then you take action that's deciding and, and, and acting. And it's kind of cyclical. So after you act, you see again. And we've, we've used that model at CORE to help teams understand their own mentalities. We built it out just a little bit into see, think, plan, act. So we put plan in between think and act because a lot of times you can think and they like, okay, this is what we need to make. You can form a vision, form kind of an end state, but then planning is how you kind of articulate the resources needed, the time needed, the steps needed to get there. And then uh, you take action and then you learn. And how well you do see, think, plan, act, learn is how high performance your mentality is. So if we take C, for example, 
in a low performance mentality and that dysfunctional mentality, people try to not see things, right? They kind of have that fingers in their ears, hands over their eyes mentality. Customers are leaving. Oh, we don't need to see that. There's a new competitor. That's irrelevant. Like they, anything that's a, something you could see, they like squash in their minds and often at scale, right? So maybe somebody will bring something up in a meeting with 20 people. Hey, we started to notice that our conversion rates are slipping. We started to realize, notice that our cost per click is going up. We started to notice whatever. And people are like, we don't need to worry about that. So it's like, now we're no longer seeing it. As you go over to the high performance state, people start seeing really deeply. Like they notice things just when there's a whisper of it and then they start to drill in and investigate. They might even see what we call Socratically by saying, hey, Jason, this is what I'm seeing. What am I missing? And that's in an effort to kind of figure out what my biases are. What am I prone to see? And what am I not seeing? When we come down to thinking, we can see that people in this low functioning state make fun of thinking. They'll say things in meetings like, we can't talk about this forever, even though we've been talking about it for like 48 seconds. So you're like, we're a long way from forever. And that's the statement that gets made. People kind of in those lower states also want instructions. They'll just say, hey, Jason, just tell me what you want me to do. Which is me saying, I don't want to think. I don't want to figure out what to do. I want you to tell me what to do and you think for me. And then finally, we get to these high performance state of thinking, which is I really want to comprehend something or I want to comprehend it so deeply that I can almost like reinvent it. I can disrupt it with my thinking. And if you're a person who has these high performance modes of seeing, thinking, acting, learning, then you are in a position to be a mentor, to help people who are seeing less to see more, help people that are thinking less to think more, help people that are planning not very well, like planning today without thinking about years in advance to think about their future. If you, if you exhibit these high performance behaviors, chances are other people would benefit from kind of saying, hey, I think I can help you see better, think better, yeah. plan better, act better. And, you know, achievement obviously will come from those things, but those are the inputs that people need, not just the outcomes, because you can't say like, oh, here's how I built my $50 million business, but you can say, here are all the things, here's the mindset I was in that made it possible to see these things, to outmaneuver these threats, to be ahead of these opportunities, stuff like that. Makes sense. Okay. Um so maybe a more tactical question. So if I'm an employee and I'm hearing everything you're saying and it's resonating, it's like, oh man, like what Evan is saying, I want, I want that. I want to be in a high performance state, assuming my company isn't going to invest in, in something to help make that happen. How logically as an employee can, can I go about making that happen? You know, I, I'm sure I could say, well, I can go talk to Evan, but he's, you know, super busy and, you know, he's this big deal and I probably aren't going to get any of his time. Now I may be able to overcome that hurdle by paying you for your time and, and guidance, which I would be helpful, but maybe I'm not in the position to do that. So is the, is the mentorship more passive or maybe more asynchronous where rather than seeking out direct one-on-one time, I'm consuming your content, I'm reading your books. I'm, does that question make sense? Like as an, like how, how do I go out and find someone and how do I make it? happen and what is a realistic expectation yeah i think i think that's a good point i think 
you know, you can kind of, um, from the standpoint of coaching and mentorship and, you know, professional engagements, um, if you, if you can set aside, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, you know, and I don't know what stage everybody's in, but a lot of coaching that's very good is going to cost people, um, three to $500 kind of per session that they do. They may want to meet weekly or bi-weekly for, I would say two to three months. It's one of those things where it really helps to kind of elongate the timeline rather than going to the gym twice and hoping to be buff. It's going to probably be better to go to the gym consistently for three months and get a lot out of it. And it's kind of shocking how much personal growth can happen in those three months, really because like at the first couple of weeks, there will typically be something like huge that, <laughs> that you just weren't seeing a certain way. And then through repetition and practice, you can implement that in your life. And so I, when I went through some of that, uh, the big epiphany for me was that um, even if you're really useful to somebody, even if you have the knowledge and the skills, if you create negative experiences for other people, then that's really unappealing and they won't even care that you have the skills and the knowledge to help. So back when I was in the analytics world, um, I, I would often get frustrated and then create this really negative experience for people because I'd be like, oh, we're just doing this wrong. Like, just do it this way. And, um, and people obviously would push back and kind of like, you know, want to exclude me and exclude anybody like that from the situation. So for me, the big epiphany was like, oh, I need to form all of any usefulness that I have to another person for my knowledge or my skills has to kind of be loaded onto this train car of positive performance in order to make it through the tunnel of their brain without, you know, without the tunnel spitting it back out. And if it's, if it's just loaded on a train car up here, you know, this is, this is for you. Um, it, the brain will just spit it out and you with it. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I think duration. So if you think about that, just do the math on three to $500 per time for six to 12 times would be a, a, an ideal personal budget to set aside for something like that. Some coaches and mentors are going to be considerably more expensive with potentially much more transformative advice and connections and things like that, that, uh, would kind of make the ROI quote unquote work out. Uh, and then other people will be happy to kind of donate their time. Like I try a few times a year to, to donate, um, 10 or 20 hours of time to just meeting with whoever. Um, and I know a lot of people do that. A lot of people write content. There are good books out there, stuff like that. Um, so you just have to kind of figure out what you can do, but a willingness to put real dollars, uh, against this in real time against this uh, is really a transformative experience. And one of the things we've learned from doing our coaching and our mentoring programs is that there needs to be kind of a, a more middle ground kind of group option. So we're actually launching like a cohort based uh, option as we finish this year and head into next year. For that reason, I know we're not the only ones doing stuff like that where you're, if you're in product management, if you're in analytics, if you're in, technology or you're a founder of a early stage company, then you can meet as groups with people like you and not just kind of have coaching and mentorship, but 
get connected to people in different environments and what are the common threads and what are people doing that are a little differently than uh, that's different than what you're doing at your company? What is their environment like in contrast to yours? Because a lot of people just need their eyes open to what else is out there. Yeah, And yeah. that can be a really good format for it. And I think it's, it's, it's really important that you bring up the investment component of it because I, you know, if we, if we go back to the sports world or chess or, or whatnot, I don't think anyone is logically thinking, oh yeah, I, sh- I can go out and get a world-class expert to help guide me and coach me. And, and they're just going to do it for free forever out of the goodness of their heart. Yet it seems like we have that mentality a lot in the, in the business world in which it's kind of expected or the expectation is, well, yeah, I, I kind of want some coaching and advice and, and guidance, but like people should just do that out of the goodness of their heart. And sure, I think there's a degree and, you know, I've done that to a, to a point, but it's limited, right? Like I can't sit down and develop a plan and coach you for the next six months for free. I, you know, I have also other things I need to do. Um, how do we change that mentality or is that, is that perception realistic or, are you, you know, do you see something similar where there's just a lack of desire to to pay for something that is incredibly transformative and valuable. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it is a, a concept of fairness, right? So a, any great product or any great service in my mind is uh, a mix of compassion and fairness, like put together and compassion is why we make the product in the first place and why we want the product to be effective, to help a person who is dealing with a, uh, challenge, obstacle, problem, uh, goal, whatever. Now this product is going to help them or this service is going to help them achieve it. That's an act of compassion. And without fairness, that act of compassion would be free and it would be donation. It would be charity uh, or, you know, philanthropy maybe is a nicer word than charity. And if we add fairness back in, we're just saying, well, the act of compassion becomes fair to both parties if it's not free. In, in some way, right? It can be bartering, it can be dollars, it can be whatever the scenario is, but both parties should be concerned with fairness. And if people are giving you something for free, uh, there's probably some fairness baked into the formula. Maybe that person kind of like you do, or like I do at times, there's picking amount of time, a certain uh, number of times per year to make that donation, because it's great. Like I love it, I love meeting new people. I love learning that things that people that I am working with over here are in common with other people over here. So it's kind of expands the size of the universe and validates a lot of the, of the stuff that we do as a business. Um, and it's just really fun and stimulating to do, but also consider that a lot of the stuff that's really free, uh, or inexpensive, you know, your listicles, 10 things to do if you want to get better at so-and-so, those are not presented to you from the high-performance perspective of comprehension and of transcendence. They're presented to you from this, from this lower performance of instructions and solutions. So they can help you understand what to do in certain situations, and that will help you. I mean, there's no, no, no doubt about it, but you won't know why it worked, right? You won't have comprehension and you won't know how to handle situations that are slightly different than the situations that are kind of listed where this instruction or this solution is effective. And, you know, much like the work you do with analytics, there are implementation guides 
instructions out there. And there are yeah. solutions that automate various parts of implementation. But what you bring to the table is the ability to deliver that custom suit, not the solution and, and not the instructions so that this thing comes from comprehension about your actual needs as opposed to generalizations and doesn't fit anybody that well. So that's just kind of, and that's just implementation work that doesn't even begin to explore the vast array of things you're doing with optimization and um, experience recommendations and deeper analytics and things like that. So, I mean, it's, it's a really, it's a really simple formula. Um, and you know what? Uh, great futures don't belong to cheap people. Yeah. And that's, I mean, sorry, sorry to be blunt, but if, if your money is more important than to you to keep that money is more important than to exchange it for the possibility of a different outcome, then fine. Like just keep your money and stay out of the way of the people who are going to do way better than you. And that's like, I mean, sorry, that's just kind of how it works. And there will be missteps, right? I think a lot of people want to guarantee if I'm going to part with $300 or $1,500, how do I know it will work? Uh, Well, patterns really help, right? If it's worked for a lot of other people or it hasn't worked for a lot of other people, great. Like, you know, you look at a lot of work companies do with culture and they'll help, they'll go work with somebody uh, who helped them with mission, vision, values and be like, mission, vision, values has never helped anybody in the history of the world. So don't invest in something that fails on a 90% basis, right? Invest in things that succeed 90% of the time instead of yeah. fail 90% of the time. Yeah, you, you bring up a, a good point. And it reminds me, I, I know this sports broadcaster in Salt Lake City. And I think one time I asked him, I'm like, dude, why do you always look so fire? He's like, dude, I, I don't, I don't, I don't buy anything off the, off the rack. I, I get everything because my shirt's custom tailored. I'm like, you look amazing. How'd you know how to do it? He's like, well, everyone I know that looks amazing goes to Taylor Cooperative in Salt Lake City. So I figured they must be good. So they were worth the price to pay. And doesn't that just, that shirt just hit different when it's been custom fit to your size instead of wearing the XL or the large, or yeah. the, you know, fit all. Um, yeah, it's, it's worth the investment to look and feel amazing and i think you know investing in in mentorship and coaching is is something that really really uh can pay off so my i guess my last question is and and to be fair i i I can keep asking questions for hours but the last question i will ask today is what advice would you have for two different cohorts um those just getting started in their career that may be intimidated, not know where to start, not know how to figure out, you know, but want, they have the mindset of wanting to be elite and want to have a coach and use outside expertise and guidance as part of their recipe to becoming elite. What advice do you have for them for getting started? And then on the flip side, those more experienced in their career that may be a bit more rigid and set in their ways and say, eh, I've been there, done that. I don't need help. And I think you yeah, touched I mean, on a little pe- bit of that, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so th- one thing that might help is when we think about how people show up to work, um, maybe like a little framework would help get us organized mentally around this. So if we think about how good a person is at something, that can be our y-axis up and down. So if you're not very good at something, then you're an amateur or a beginner. 
And if you're really good at something, you're an expert and you can kind of be on that spectrum. And then as we go from left to right on the x-axis, we go from people who are primarily concerned with doing things as they are today. Um, and then as we go to the right, we're, we're seeing that people are concerned with changing things in the future. Like they want to kind of like change the world as opposed to be good. So you can kind of see it, that top left quadrant. That's an expert who wants to do things the way the world works today. That's, that's what we call expert. If you are somebody who's really good at something and wants to change the way the world works, we call you a modifier. So experts and modifiers are both really good at something, but the expert shows up to work to say, um, you know, how do you, what do you want done? And then they're like, boom, I did it. I did it awesomely. And so that would be like, let's take the analytics world of implementation. Um, the expert would show up and say, what do you want done? And they'd say, I want GA4 implemented. And they'd say, boom, there's your awesome GA4 implementation. The beginner would be like, okay, I'm going to have to read some user manuals here, right? So the modifier wouldn't just do the GA4 implementation. They would say, but is that the right thing to want? Do, is that the project we should be doing? Is it the right priority? Is it the right choice? Is it gonna, what is it going to do? How is it going to change our future? And their primary objective would be to make sure we're thinking about doing the right thing in the first place, doing things differently. And the person who's thinking about the future badly, we call them the anti-modifier. They get in the way of that progress. And we all know people who are like, oh, we should do X, Y, Z better. And they're like, we don't need to do X, Y, Z better. And it's like, okay, so now the future will look like the present instead of the future looking like a better future. And that's, that's the way that, that they're just bad at future. And these modifiers are good at future. Experts are good at present and amateurs or beginners are potentially um, good, you know, could be good at present or future. So as a beginner, to answer your question, chooses their adventure, right? Choose your path. Here's you, here you are at the beginning of the game. You get to choose your path. You get to stay today more than ever. You can stay an amateur forever. You can never be good at something and you can be not that good at it for forever and get paid by various companies for a super long time. Uh, if you do that long enough, you'll probably be promoted up to the point where you become an anti-modifier, where your decisions are now affecting the future and not just the present, because you're in charge of now of priorities and resourcing and stuff like that. If you are uh, just coming out of the gates as a beginner, as an amateur, you should seek experts if you're more, if you're more comfortable um, responding to requests. If you'd like to be given the, the, the sanctuary of this is where we're working, these are the confines, this is what, these are our goals, these are the types of things, and you like kind of being given that, that table setting, so to speak, to do great work in, then you should probably surround yourself and get mentorship from experts, from people that are very, very good at what you do. And very good in competence is really defined as your ability to do things well and efficiently. So people who kind of, you know, in, in, to go back to your baseball stuff, Jim, who are able to point the bat and then hit it where they pointed the bat, those are the people you're looking for. You're not looking for like in the Lego Batman movie when Batman pulled up and threw like, 
600 batarangs and then finally hit the lever that opened the gate. <laughs> and then he goes, first try, right? Like, it's a great that's scene. Not who, yeah, <laughs> it's a great scene. It's one of my, and in our family, like we, we use that meme like all the time. Like if we screw something up, we'd be like, first try. Cause <laughs> it's just like so perfect. So if you find people who were successful, but did it really inefficiently with their 500 throws, that's not, that's not expertise. That's um, trial and error. And trial and error is very different than expertise. And even experts are going to have some trial and error. So you got to be able to insert some nuance into your brain around this topic. But experts are very, very likely to get it right. I wrote a Medium article called The Statistics of Expertise a couple of years ago. And in that Medium article, I, can, I compared a person who has 50-50 odds of getting something right and a person who has 90-10 odds of getting something right. And if we make that person have to get 10 things right in a row, even a person with 90% odds of getting it right each time has only a 35 or 36% chance of getting 10 things right in a row. So even super awesome experts, and you see this at golf, you see this in basketball, et cetera, like what's your shooting average? What's your greens and regulation? What's your score, you know, your, your score against par, et cetera. You see, even the people who are best at this, who get it right 90% of the time, still make tons of mistakes in their path. And what that convinces people who have 50-50 odds is, oh, they're just like me. I, I can hit the ball into the woods too. I can strike out too. See, the experts aren't that great. But if you look at the probability of 50% odds getting 10 things right in a row, it's less than a tenth of a percent. So we've gone from a 50-50 to 90-10 odds, which seems like a pretty big gap. It's almost 2x. It's not 2x. It's 356x. An expert is 356 times more likely to get 10 things right in a row than an amateur. And that's what I mean is even that expert who's 356 times more likely, statistically speaking, at 90-10 odds, will still get it wrong 65% of the time, at least one thing wrong. They'll still make at least one mistake. You have to build into your brain the latitude for mistake making that even happens at the highest levels of expertise so that you can remember that that latitude for them is this big, but the latitude for the amateur is infinite. And if you're going to seek experts to move up that path, find people who have that odd of success, right? The good performance on a per trial basis, but build into your psyche like nobody's perfect they're still going to get it something wrong 65% of the time. Now, if you want to be a futurist, you need to start looking diagonally and be mentored from people who change how things go, how things work. And that is really, uh, it's a rarer population, but it's a, a probably a more obvious population. People who have changed things have changed things. <laughs> they, have, they have a history of, of doing it. Uh, I don't think there's a LinkedIn filter on their search to find out how to search for people who have changed things, but uh, you can look and you can see when people have kind of thought, okay, how could we do this a different way? And mentorship from those people, it can be very eye-opening in the sense that it will help you understand those high-functioning tools of how they see, how they think, how they plan, how they act, how they learn super differently than other people do the same five things. And a, you may also decide that's totally not for me. I, I don't, I don't, I want more balance in my life. I want, you know, more certainty, more peace, more stability. If your personality wants those things, 
no sense in sending yourself down a path you're not going to enjoy. So that's, uh, that's a good way of kind of targeting it. And for the more experienced people who are a little uh, steadfast in their ways, you know, I think when you're further along in your career, you become a little more aware of, let's call it the arc that you're on, you know, that diminishing returns curve. Yeah. And if you're feeling yourself flattening, you need to take action radically, like right now. And chances are you have the money to invest yeah. in deepening that curve uh, quickly, because if your goal has shifted, um, you know, whether it's title or money or whatever, to a certain plateau, if your brain is on a plateau and you don't think it should be, you need to leap to action right away. Um, the, tomorrow is not as good as today and the day after tomorrow is even worse. So it's like, you'll, it's, we've all been in situations where we say, I wish I had done this a long time ago. Yeah. That's going to be one of those situations. Yeah. Incredibly valuable advice. Um, this has been awesome. I guess, Jim, any last minute words and Evan, where can people find you learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, I just, I just, I was going to go, go there. Um, Cause I definitely want to be respectful of your, of your time. And you know, we're coming up on the hour mark now. So yeah, like to let, let our listeners know where they can find you, where they can reach out to you if they have further questions or want to get more info. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, our website is okay, but not better than okay. It's not a high performance or peak performance website right now when it comes to, <laughs> although I, it feels like that that's a common issue. Um, but core-sciences.com is our site where you can kind of at least get a feeling for the tools and overall goals that we have as a business. Our goal is really simple. We believe that human beings in a better mentality um, and have better teaming dynamics become capable of doing things that other teams just can't do. Um, and not only do we believe that, it's it's fairly proven and, and we can show that. So we, um, that's kind of the goal is get by getting a person or a team into a, a higher functioning mentality, they can start to do things on their own that are, that previously seemed impossible. Um, Twitter is probably the easiest way to kind of interact um you know i don't check it every day but if you dm me i unless it's offering um to build a new website for me i typically <laughs> respond uh but maybe if you're really good at building websites i will respond so, because be careful so, what you ask for. um yeah exactly exactly right um but yeah email me evan at core-sciences.com visit the site reach out on twitter um, I'll probably do another round come in December of um, some of that kind of free hours that I'll spend with teams and with individuals. And we do have a bunch of these cohorts launching. So if you're in analytics or product management or um, sales or whatever, and you think better understanding how the humans work would help you, that's what we do. And would love for you to join one of those cohorts um, or we can maybe help you find a better option if we're not it. So that's it. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, Evan. This has been fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Interesting yeah. Thanks for having ways. me. Yeah. These are just the cheat codes if you want them. You know, I, I think <laughs> we're all trying to, to get things done, but we're, you know, whether you're playing the game in easy mode, hard mode or nightmare mode really kind of depends on if you're 
understanding how other people really work. And if you, if you don't, you're probably playing the game in hard mode. Well said. Yes. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. And, uh, We'll wrap up there and talk to everybody later. See you. See ya. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of 33 Tangents. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast aggregator so others can find us. If you would like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at 33tangents.33sticks.com. 33 Tangents is a production of 33 Sticks, an analytics boutique.